All right, so I'm going to shoot a really quick video uh, to address something that came up in one of the groups that I'm in. Um, and it basically says this. So this is a picture of a translation of Alphonsus Liguori's uh, list of devotions, etc. And I'm going to say a couple of things about it. So here's the claim. Uh, quote, now, if you try and witness to a Catholic, you may know that they say that they do not worship Mary. However, this Catholic devotional speaks volumes of who they believe Mary to be in the Church of Rome. And so here's a highlight. I worship thee, O great queen, and give thee thanks for the many favors thou hast bestowed on me in the past. Most of all, I do thank thee for having saved me from hell, which I so often deserved. I love thee, lady, more worthily of all love, and by the love which I bear thee, I promise ever in the future to serve thee and do what in me lies to win others to thy love. In thee I put all my trust, all my hope, all my salvation. Receive me as thy servant, cover me with the mantle of thy protection, thou who art the mother of mercy. Okay, let's talk about this. First off, I want to back up about three pages in this book, which I actually did in this comment thread. So I'm going to click on this and you can see uh, this is another prayer of, uh, of Alphonsus Liguori. And I don't know if I can zoom in on this anymore or not. I don't think I can, unfortunately. Uh, it says, Jesus, O oh name of Jesus, sweet name, delightful name, consoling name. For what else is Jesus than Savior? Therefore, O oh Jesus, for thy sweet name's sake, be to me a Jesus and save me. Suffer me not to be eternally lost. O oh good Jesus, let not my inequities destroy me, whom thy bounty made. O oh sweet Jesus, recognize in me that what is thine, and efface all that is not thine. O oh sweet Jesus, show mercy now in the time of mercy, and condemn me uh, not in the day of justice. What profit to thy precious blood, or what honor will my, will my destruction give thy holy name, O Jesus? The dead shall not praise thee, O Lord Jesus, nor all that go down to hell. Most admirable Jesus, O meek and most loving Jesus, O Jesus, 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 admit me to the number of thy elect. So this is written, first off, in a poetical style. Um, and there's another one down here below. Uh, you know, Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast, but sweeter far sweeter far thy face to see and in thy presence rest is that so this is like a series of different poems and um and hymns and prayers of of praise and this is just his style right so who who wrote this his name is alphonsus Liguori, and this is the wikipedia page i'm blown up about him just because i want to establish one thing uh he lived in the late 17th century uh and, and well into the, the 18th century um, he died around 1787 and he was, um, an Italian Catholic Bishop. So writing about 300 plus years ago. And the reason I bring that up is almost certainly first off, he probably wasn't writing in English. Uh, he almost certainly was writing in, uh, either Italian or Latin since he was an Italian Catholic Bishop as well as a spiritual writer, composer, music artist, poet, poet, etc. Right. Um, so already that's two strikes against this initial piece. Um, that is a, I'm not for sure. I actually was trying to figure out what the original language, um, of this was, um, and I can't tell, but I'm pretty sure it was probably Italian. So already you might just have a mistranslation. Obviously now there's a lot of other, uh, very flowery language in here and I'm going to deal with that. And I'll be quite honest as a Catholic, 
it's not my favorite. It's not my cup of tea. Um, I've seen a lot of Ligori stuff and it oftentimes even raises the hackles on my, my back uh, a little bit. But the reason I'm pointing this out is because I want you to understand that you can make a distinction between flowery language that I'm not super comfortable with or that I'm not a big fan of or that I wouldn't personally want to say versus this is heretical nonsense. And this does not fall into that because what we we're going to see is that he is simply using um, language, particularly archaic language, um, that is not intending to show Mary as any kind of a divinity. Um, so if you look at the word worship, I'm just going to go to Google. Uh, this is pulling this from, I think, Oxford, um, OED. Yeah, from Oxford English. And so there's lots of different words that the word worship can mean. Obviously, the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. Sure. Uh, you know, that's in, in modern English, that's pretty much how we use the word. Uh, similar, the acts or rites that make up a formal expression of reverence for a deity or religious ceremony or ceremonies. Yeah. Uh, adoration or devotion compared, uh, comparable to religious homage. So, so it's is more of an analogous use, right? Comparable to religious homage shown towards a person or principle, our society's worship of teenagers, uh, for instance, um, or archaic. And this is where, you know, 300 years ago, um, honor given to someone in recognition of their merit uh, or British. And, and, you know, Italy is a lot closer to England than it is to the United States using addressing or referring to an important or high ranking person. You can actually see this in star Wars. At one point, Harrison Ford, uh, Han Solo calls princess Leia, your worshipfulness uh, after they escape from the trash compactor in, in new hope and in English courts of law, it's very, very common to speak to uh, the, the, the magistrate, the judge as your worship, right? And that's not because they view the judge as any kind of a deity it's just the way that the language is used and it may not be language that you're comfortable with and that's totally fine totally fine but it's a legitimate use of the language and to simply harp on it because you think it's not makes you wrong because it is definitively definitively how the language is used or at least was used at a certain point and that's why it's important to to stop let the the hysterics die down and just have a calm rational discussion about this so i want to share with you an article written by a guy i have a lot of respect for uh i think politically he's off the off the deep end these days um but i i still actually share this article with a lot of people um i'm going to read it this is by a guy named Mark Shea. Um, this article is like 17 years old. So, I mean, it's been in, in my, my brain for a long time. And I love this. He writes this. He says, one of the great things about being a humanities major is that it helps you despise all the money that you're never going to make. Ha ha ha. Um, but another great thing about it is it prepares you for approaching religious literature in ways that mysteriously enough don't seem to occur to many people without a background uh, or with a background uh, in biblical studies or systematic theology or whatnot. Not that these disciplines are bad, mind you. It's just that there are days when I wish people would let their hair down and not read every bit of Christian literature as though it is a term in a syllogism or a piece of evidence in a murder trial. Evidence for the prosecution. Take, for instance, a man I know, we'll call him Bob, who found a bunch of Marian prayers containing gobs of effusive language about her. Augustine, no slacker in the purple prose department, wrote, O blessed virgin, who can worthily repay thee thy just dues of praise and thanksgiving, who, by the wondrous ascent of thy will, didst rescue a fallen world? What songs of praise can our weak human nature recite in thy honor, since it is by thy intervention alone that it has found the way to restoration? Except then... 
such poor thanks as we have to offer here, though they be unequal to thy merits, and receiving our vows, obtain by thy prayers the remission of our offenses. Obtain by thy, by thy prayers. I love that part because that's really what we get at the Catholic heart of things. Carry thou our prayers within the sanctuary of the heavenly audience, and bring forth it from the antidote of our reconciliation and bring forth from it the antidote for reconciliation. May the sins we bring before the Almighty God through thee become pardonable through thee. May what we ask for with sure confidence through thee be granted. Take our offering, grant us our requests, obtain pardon for what we fear, for thou art the sole hope of sinners. Uh, and he's either making her a deity or he's not and everything else. I'm going to stop there with this little bit, uh, but it's just more of the same stuff, right? So this is Augustine. This is writing in the 400s. Um, and he is no slouch when it comes to saying Jesus is God and there is one God and everything else. So you have to be able to understand and nuance and parse language uh, in a way that's deeper than your, your probably sixth grade English level of reading, which is the average level of reading for uh, particularly an American. Uh, but in the English speaking word, that's that's why most news articles are written at what's called the sixth grade level or the median reading level, uh, because most people don't read beyond that. Uh, they just don't. It's a shame, uh, but it's true. So then he says this, just the phrase for thou art the sole hope of sinners was enough to give Bob pause. But of course, there's a lot more where that came from in Catholic devotional literature. Listen, all you who desire the kingdom, honor the blessed Virgin Mary, and you will find life and eternal salvation. Um, or, O oh Mary, we poor sinners uh, know no other refuge than thee, for thou art our only hope, and on thee we rely for our salvation. Likewise, if you are into this sort of thing, St. Louis de Montfort and St. Alphonsus Liguori are great at it. That is Alphonsus Liguori that we were just looking at um, that started this whole piece, especially Mediterranean piety. And of course, downloaded off the internet without context or explanation, it makes a rich source of gasps for people looking for ways to be shocked by Catholic devotion to Mary. Indeed, a favorite practice by those terrified of Marian piety is to pour over a particularly gushy prayer or devotion to Mary and footnote it as evidence of the alleged theological errors of Romanism. Language under the influence of love. What this practice invariably fails to take into account, however, is that such language is poetic, not doctrinal, and that it is a commonplace for poetic language under the influence of love to make extreme and, strictly speaking, inaccurate statements. Looking to a florid prayer to Mary or a saint is an excellent way to get a grasp of how Catholics with a strong Marian piety feel about Mary or about whatever saint they're talking about. It is an extraordinarily bad way of critiquing Catholic theology. However, and the surest proof of that is gained not by pouring over Catholic prayers and devotions by looking at any language that anybody when they are writing under the influence of love uses. Here, for example, is Elizabeth Barrett Browning's Sonnet 43 from her Sonnets from the Portuguese. It was written privately to her husband, Robert Browning, and was not intended for publication until Mr. Browning, impressed with the work of his little Portuguese, insisted that she publish her poetry. Any sane person reading this passionate love poetry recognizes that what he is reading is passionate love poetry and does not demand that Mrs. Browning writes with syllogistic and systematic accuracy acceptable to a panel of theologians. But let us for the moment subject poor Elizabeth's work to the same kind of scrutiny that poor St. Augustine or Thomas of Genova or Louis de Montfort or Alphonsus Liguori's equally passionate poetry receives from the critics of the Catholic faith. Let us 
with their gimlet eye for the hysterical, for the heretical, highlight the damning passages, which clearly prove the sinister theological errors informing uh, Browningism. <laughs> Here we go. How do I love thee? Analyzing Browningism. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and the breadth and the height my soul can reach when feeling out of sight for the ends of being an ideal grace. I love thee to every level, to the level of every day's most quiet need by sun and candlelight. I love thee freely as men strive for right. I love thee purely as they turn from praise. I love thee with a passion put to use in my old Griefs and with my childhood's faith, I love thee with a love I seemed to lose. With my lost saints, I love thee with the breath, smiles, and tears all of my life. And if God choose, I shall love but thee better after death. So he puts a couple of notes in here. Um, first one, my soul can reach. I love thee to the breadth and depth and height that my soul can reach. Here we see the shockingly idolatrous core of Browningism. Mrs. Browning's real religion is nothing less than the worship and adoration of a mere creature, Robert Browning. Clearly, this constitutes a complete rejection of the Bible believer's doctrine of God. Uh, number two, um, when feeling out of sight for the ends of being an ideal grace, ascribes a mere creature, Robert Browning, the ultimate perfections reserved only for God himself. The ends of being an ideal grace? I love thee purely. This passage is a clear expression of the Pelagian, or at least semi-Pelagian, underpinnings of Browningism. It constitutes a clear denial of the biblical doctrine of original sin, since no fallen human being can love purely or freely without the aid of divine grace. Obviously, Miss Browning rejects the entire biblical doctrine of justification by grace. And finally, I shall but love thee better after death. Bible-based Christianity rejects the practice of necromancy. Mrs. Browning advocates the practice of spiritism and witchcraft, which, of course, keeps getting banged around in the group that I'm in right now as well. Oh, no, Shakespeare, too. Worse still, Browning is not the only one. Here is Shakespeare's sonnet, uh, number, uh, <laughs> number 18, uh, another damning piece of evidence showing that many poets seem to be riddled with gross theological errors. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's least, least have, have all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed. And he says about this line, commits crude pagan error of identifying the sun with the eye of God. And every fair from fair sometimes declines by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed, denies God's sovereign and providential rule of nature, and ascribes alterations to nature in either chance or nature itself. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest, nor shall death brag thou under in his shade when the eternal lines to time thou grossed. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. <gasps> the last six lines of the sonnet constitute the idolatrous, heretical, and blasphemous claim that eternal life is given to the recipient of this sonnet, not through trust in Jesus Christ, but through Shakespeare's own poetry, and so on and so forth.
We can continue forever in flat-footed incomprehension of poetic language and inquisitorial dullness. Examples from non-Christian or Protestant or just plain human poets in praise of the beloved can't be multiplied till the cows come home. But the point is relatively simple. Devotional poetry. Whatever the object of devotion is, Mary or one spouse, tends to use this sort of all-consuming language. The moral of the story. We may wish very much that this were not so. If we are of a particular personality type that tends to prize absolute logistic precision over poetry, we may complain that this is not our cup of tea, and we are free to do so. But this is an aesthetic, not a theological judgment. And that's the point. Don't try to construct a critique of Catholic Marian theology or Browningism or Shakespeare's beautiful work on some tin-eared platform of evidence for the prosecution, which takes poetic language and tries to press it into a strict syllogistic argument. When a Catholic poet meditating on Mary's fiat, that's the Latin phrase, it means let it be done unto me according to thy word, in the incarnation, praises her as our only hope, he is not, strictly speaking, accurate. Just as Shakespeare is not, strictly speaking, accurate in describing or ascribing eternal summer to his poetry. On the other hand, it is on Mary's freely given yes, that fiat, that the fate of the world did hinge. And in Catholic poetry, aware that the larger reality of God's sovereignty exists as well, remains the bounds of poetic speech to describe her as our only hope. Just as we can describe a good surgeon as the only hope of my badly injured friend without rejecting the sovereignty of God. In so doing, we merely use human language in a human way. In common discourse, we can understand that with relatively little effort. The moral of this little lit crit lesson is simple. Read poetry as poetry and theology as theology. Devotional prayers and poetry are not the same things as nuanced, conciliar, ecclesial, and papal formulations of doctrine. So do not judge them by identical standards, but use the common sense that you employ when you're reading any sort of non-religious literature and let your own discretion be your tutor. Suit the action to the word and the word to the action with this special or step, not the modesty of nature for anything so done, so overdone is from the purpose of play. So now when we come back and we approach this with that mentality in mind, we see what this is and we see multiple layers of problems with making this an argument against Catholicism. A, this may be a bad translation. You don't know that. Uh, B, even if it's not, it's poetry. That's it. You don't need to go any deeper. You can look into the Catholic Church. Go read the Catechism. If you want to understand and attack Catholic doctrine, quote block by block, paragraph by paragraph, paragraph the Catholic um, uh, Catechism. Uh, just Google Catechism of Catholic Church. You'll find multiple searchable varieties online for free. Um, and go to the parts about Mary. You can search for all the parts about Mary and read what it says, because I think in general, you're going to be pretty surprised about what it says. And prayer to the saints comes from one of the oldest creeds in the Catholic Church. Both the, uh, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed state the communion of the saints. Um, 
the general principle behind this is the body of Christ is one. Jesus doesn't have two bodies, a body of people alive on earth and a body of people who are dead. Um, we know for a whole host of reasons that those who have gone before us understand and, and are aware of us, not through any merit or power of their own, but through the very power and grace of God. How do we know this? Where do we see this in scripture? Well, first off, uh, we see it in an illicit fashion uh, when Saul, uh, King Saul, calls up uh, with the witch of Endor, um, Samuel from, from the dead. This is necromancy. This is, this is prohibited. Uh, and, and Samuel chides Saul for doing it. And yet we see that it actually happens. So it seems to be the case that there is some real reality, uh, to this being the case. We see passages, um, for instance, in Jeremiah 15, it opens, uh, with the phrase, uh, even though Moses and Samuel were before me, uh, interceding for Israel, nevertheless, I, I wouldn't relent, right? because God knew he had to punish the people. Um, and so it, it doesn't show the, ineff the ineffectiveness. It shows the effectiveness. It shows that they're actually there and they're interceding. Um, but at the end of the day, God's will be done, not theirs, right? And and that's that's how it is with all intercessory prayer. You might be praying for a friend who's going to go in for surgery and, you know, dear Lord, please let the surgery go well. Dear Lord, uh, you know, please, you know, protect the surgeon's hand. But you know what? Accidents happen in surgery. They just, it just happens. And so we have to be able to accept that, right? So it doesn't mean that sort of intercessory prayer is any better or any worse. It just means, you know, it's the case. But we see this in lots of other places. So for instance, I think it's Psalm 148. Uh, the, the psalmist calls upon all the heavenly hosts, all the angels, all the saints, uh, the whole heavenly hosts uh, to pray with them. Um, we see when Jesus is on the cross, uh, he calls out the, the opening lines of, of Psalm 22. Uh, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Uh, Matthew, I think it is, records this in Aramaic. Uh, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And when you say Eloi, Eloi, it kind of sounds like or Eli, Eli, however you want to say it, sounds like Elijah, Elijah. And the people who were listening heard him and they say, look, he's calling on Elijah. Uh, now, why would they ever make that assumption? Think about this. Why would they ever make the assumption he was calling out to Elijah? Because it was a common practice that people understood that many of those who had gone before them were alive. They were living and they were aware in a real sense. The Sadducees at one point come to Jesus with a number of different questions. The Sadducees denied the resurrection in general. Um, and they tried to show him that the, the, the resurrection didn't make sense. One of my favorite passages, uh, they do this, they, they ring them a story about a woman with seven husbands. Maybe you're familiar with the story. So a woman gets married and doesn't have any kids and her husband dies. And so it's the, the brother's duty to raise up children. He marries her. He dies with no kids. She marries the next husband dies with no kids, Mary's next husband dies with kids, seven, seven, husbands, seven husbands go by, none of them leaving kids. And they ask this, this point of question in, in the resurrection, if this resurrection thing really happens, right? Cause they don't believe that, which is sad. You see, <laughs> so you can remember who they are. Um, <laughs> and I, I've mentioned this multiple times on this channel already, but it's one of my favorite examples. Um, they're, they're, they're saying, you know, if the resurrection is real, then this is a real contradiction. This is a real point of contention because is she going to be in this real, weird, really weird polyamorous, you know, have a male harem of, of husbands in heaven? You know, how is that going to work out? And Jesus answers them uh, in that passage uh, in, in a very unique way. And he, he answers, first off, they, they come at him with a quote. So, so this story is the story of Tobit. Uh, which is in the Catholic Bible. It was in the Septuagint that was quoted by the apostles. Um, it was in the Bible that Jesus would have used, uh, which was the, uh, the, the Greek and Aramaic version of the scriptures 
um, that the the apostles used because they they weren't using the the, the Hebrew version. In fact, like ninety some odd percent of the quotations of the Old Testament that are in the New Testament come from the Septuagint version, and we can see this because there's changes that are made. Right, uh, one of the changes, and I think I've mentioned this as well before, uh, is in um, the, the famous prophecy about the, the virgin shall conceive. Well, the, the Hebrew just says a maiden shall conceive. Now, the general implication is a maiden could be a virgin, right? Um, but Matthew quotes the Septuagint. The Septuagint uses a very unique word that says partenos. And partenos means um, the, the virgin, right? The virgin shall conceive. Uh, and so uh, in, in a sense, it seems like this this change in in uh, the Holy Spirit guiding Matthew to 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 write down the, the prophecy that's being fulfilled prompted him to write down not the Hebrew version, but the the Greek version, because it actually is a refinement in a really weird way of what was going on in the uh, it, what was kind of implicitly there in, in the Hebrew version, right? Uh, it's more explicit in the Septuagint version that Matthew quotes, uh, even though he could have quoted otherwise. And there are definitely words um, on error, et cetera. Uh, there's definitely words for um, for a young woman uh, that are gine, uh, that are not um, partenos. Partenos is a, a very definitive thing. Anyway, so they're quoting him the book of Tobit. And they don't accept that book. They didn't accept anything other than the books of Moses, in fact. And he answers them. And, and I love this because he actually answers them at their level, knowing that they're not going to accept. They're, they're, they're challenging both the idea of the resurrection and the idea of the stories that are contained in these books that they don't accept as scripture. Jesus gives them an answer that's from the Torah, from the five books of Moses, even though there's quotes in Daniel about the resurrection, um, showing that the, the resurrection, in fact, does happen. Um, nevertheless, uh, the answer that he gives them is, um, have you not heard that the God is the God of, of the dead and not the living? He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God is not a God of contradiction. And so what that means is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in fact living, not dead. And so he's he's trying to show them using a text that they appreciate, which is why as Catholics, we generally aren't going to quote the Septuagint. And we're not going to quote the what you would call the Apocrypha. We would call the Deuterocanonicals at you. Um, because if you're not going to accept Maccabees, um, then the idea of prayer for the dead um, that as that's referenced in that book is not going to make a lot of sense. So we have to show other ways, uh, of, of having this conversation. And there's definitely ways to do this. Um, it's not what this video is about. Um, so <laughs> to go all the way back to my point, uh, what we see is when, when Jesus calls out for Elijah, they understand that he's calling out to Elijah, who of course was uniquely uh, assumed into heaven in, in, in the fiery chariot. But we see Samuel, uh, we see Moses, uh, we see all of these people called intercessors. We see Jesus telling us that they are living. Jesus himself gives us what we assume is a parable, but it's the only parable where he actually has a named person. It's Lazarus and the rich man. And of course, he knew a guy named Lazarus who actually died and came back from the dead, which is, of course, the story uh, that is the, the core of this. If, if we're going to call it a parable, I'm going to call it a parable, but it's the, the core of that parable. And in that parable, we see the rich man is in a, a place that is not a good place, um, but he is in Sheol. He's in the Hades side. So Sheol was the abode of the dead before Christ opens the way to heaven and subsequently the way to hell. Um, and it was the place where the unrighteous did go. And uh, Lazarus is in Azer, Abraham's bosom, which is the good, the good part, right? The good place. <laughs> and uh, the rich man's in the bad place. And he's aware of his brothers on earth. And he says, I want them to avoid this, you know, willing the good, which I don't think you could do that in hell, in all honesty, uh, willing the good of his brothers. Um, and uh, it begs for someone to go back and, and, and tell them, of course, Jesus says, you know, they have 
Moses and the prophets or Abraham, uh, Father Abraham being aware and having a conversation tells them that, if, you know, they have Moses and the prophets. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither would they listen to someone coming back from the dead. Uh, and so he's actually talking about he's, he's not denying that it's possible. He's simply saying in this situation, it's, it's not going to make sense. But the whole the whole parable itself is built on the idea of the awareness of the dead of the living. Hebrews 11 goes through the gamut of the uh, the great saints of the Old Testament. Um, every single person in Hebrews 11 is, is mentioned in both the Catholic and Protestant scriptures, except for I think it's verse uh, 11 to see 25 or 35 or 27 or 37. Anyway, it talks about people being tortured for the sake of a better resurrection. That's found in 2 Maccabees. Uh, other than that, every single verse uh, every single person cited in, in Hebrews 11 is from the Old Testament, which tells you that the author of Hebrews viewed the, the people uh, in, in 2 Maccabees. 2 Maccabees 7, it's a really gory story, actually, of a, of a mother and her seven sons being tortured, uh, one, at, one after another, tortured and killed. Um, but it shows that the author of Hebrews, um, both the human author and the spiritual author, uh, viewed that as part of the canon. Um, but then Hebrews 12 talks about all of those people and calls them what? a great cloud of witnesses, right? And what do witnesses do? They, they witness, they're aware. Um, we see in Revelation, Revelation um, 5 and, and 7 are two of the really big spots where you again see the heavenly hosts being proclaimed. Uh, in Revelation 5, I want to say 5, 8, um, the elders in heaven, the 24 elders, present the prayers of the saints as incense to God. Now, in the New Testament language, the word saint is used almost every single time as a word for those on earth. Um, Hagia, it just means the holy ones, the, the ones who are fighting the good fight, right? Uh, and so if that usage holds true, then then the prayers being offered, um, this is still before the end of times happens too. The prayers being offered um, by the, the elders in heaven, by the, the 24 elders are the prayers of those who are still on earth and, and struggling. And then three chapters later in Revelation 8, we see the angels do the same thing. We also see the martyrs um, who have died in, I want to say Revelation 6, um, it's either four or six. I always kind of blur this a little bit. I can go look it up here. Let me look it up for you. Hang on. Here's the passage from Revelation 5. Uh, Between the throne and the four living creatures, among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. Um, and when he went, he took the scroll. And when he taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp. And with golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, they sang a song. Uh, they sang a new song saying, worthy are thou to receive the scrolls, etc. So there we see that uh, a few chapters later, we'll see um, the angels doing the same thing. Um, but then we have this passage here. So here's this passage. This is uh, Revelation 6, uh, verses 9 and following. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. So this is, you know, the end times hasn't happened. The resurrection isn't here. Uh, but here's the souls of those uh, slain for the word of God. And they, they cry out in a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will before thou will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? Uh, and then the number were given white robes and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and brethren should be complete, uh, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So, you know, wait until the end times. But these people are aware of what is going on on earth. So again, there's just so many different places in scripture we can see this. Um, there is a difference between necromancy um, and necromancy is trying to do what Saul did and pull the dead back uh, and make them talk to us versus merely asking the members of the body of Christ who are living to pray for us. And it's no different. If I ask you to pray for me, 
that's not assuming you to be some sort of a mediator that, that gets in the way uh, or supplants Jesus as the one true mediator. It's treating you as an intercessor. Uh, and as an intercessor, I'm simply asking you to pray for me. And the scriptural precedent is clear. Those who are dead are aware of us and they are part of the body of Christ. And the whole body is one and the whole body prays for itself. So we ask them as we ask each other to lift us in prayer and go before Christ uh, in prayer on our behalf. That doesn't mean we don't also go before Christ, uh, as I showed you the, the wording from St. Alphonsus Liguori. So anyway, I'm going to go ahead and end this here. Um, but I want to just talk about the, the flowery language you're going to see in prayers, why you need to take them with a grain of salt. And hopefully you found this helpful. Um, if you did, feel free to you know like this video down below. Uh, feel free to subscribe to my channel if you want to see more videos like this. I'm going to try and put them out, especially under quarantine, a little more regularly. And uh, we'll go from there. Uh, we are going into uh, Triduum here, so hopefully you have a uh, blessed, holy uh, week leading up to Easter. And may peace of the risen Christ be with you. God bless.